Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Kevin Kevin Hancock. He's the CEO of the Hancock Lumber Company, one of uh, the US's oldest family businesses. He's also the author of this book, The Seventh Power, One CEO's Journey into the Business of Shared Leadership. And quite a journey it is, I might say. Uh, so, and you're joining us from Catsco in Maine, which is a couple of hours north of Boston in the US. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Richard, hello. I'm quite happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And just before we came on air, I had this sort of slightly awkward moment where I was asking Kevin, uh, you know, is, it, is there an issue with uh, his mic? So for those listening, you know, it might sound a little chip, a little choppy. So, Kevin, I wonder if you might just sort of, yeah, tell us, tell us the, the situation there. Yeah, it's really the uh, impetus for the book, actually, Richard. So back in 2010, a little over a decade ago, right at the peak of the big housing and mortgage market collapsed, I began to have trouble speaking. I had no idea what was happening at the time, but I'd go to talk and my voice got very choppy and broken. And uh, it felt like when I spoke, someone was putting a seatbelt around my neck and tightening it. Turned out I'd acquired a rare neurological voice disorder that I'd never heard of called spasmodic dysphonia, which has no known cause, no known uh, cure. So th there I was in 2010 trying to help lead a lumber company through the collapse of the housing market without really being able to use my voice. So if my voice sounds a, a bit unique, uh, it's because it is a bit unique. But one of my messages from that is, Every voice is unique by design. So anyway, that's the yeah. quick story. No, no, that's good. Well, maybe that's a good a good sort of segue to launch off then. So so you're you're leading this lumber company. Uh yeah, the markets in in presumably that sort of house building market is going into free fall. You're you're losing your voice. Like, should we pick up the story from there? Yes. Yeah. So it really was hindsight stress-related. You mentioned uh, our company, Hancock Lumber, is one of the oldest companies in America, which in uh, British terms makes us probably a young company. We only go back to the 1840s, but I'm part of the sixth generation of my family to work for the company. Anyway, um, my voice condition kicked in and quite quickly. I had to come up with a different approach to leading. I hadn't thought about it this way before, but as a CEO, my primary tool had been my voice and suddenly I couldn't use it. Long story short, when it's hard to talk, you quickly develop strategies for doing less of it. And mine that I adopted, Richard, was essentially to answer a question with a question, thereby putting the conversation back on the other person. 
But this is where it started to become a, a leadership epiphany. So someone would come up to me at work because I was the CEO or one of the leaders of the company and with a question or a problem. Previously, before my voice disorder, I would have given an answer and a directive and told someone what they should do. But now what I started doing because my voice was saying this, gee, that is a good question. What do you think we should do about it? And then that person would tell me, and I would then say at first, just to protect my voice, okay, that sounds good. Let's do that. And off he or she would go with his or her solution to the problem that they'd identified. Now, what really struck me over time, having done this, say, hundreds of times, uh, is this. People actually already knew what to do. Mm -hmm. They didn't, it turned out, need a top-down, CEO-centric directive. What they really needed was the encouragement and the safety to trust their own voice. And that's when it hit me that maybe I own voice limitation, which I only ever thought of previously as a hindrance or a liability or a pain in the neck, was actually a, a bit of a gift or an invitation to lead differently in a way that pushed power out away from the center and gave others a stronger voice. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and I'm just thinking, Strike, you talked about, you know, the number of generations this business has been in your family, and presumably this was a, was a huge shift. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you were, you were kind of raised to be the, the director of this company, right? The, the guy with the answers telling people what to do. Am, am I right there? Yeah, so I, I didn't see it that way growing up. Like I oddly didn't notice, but as I reflect on it, I would say that's exactly right. And I watched as a child my father and even a bit my grandfather, both who led in a very traditional way. And I started out in my career doing exactly the same thing because that's what I had sought and followed. So this was a huge shift for me personally. And then it became a a big change for our entire organization. Right. Right. And and what did the the leaders around you, uh, you know, how did they react to this? Were they like, come on, Kevin, we want the old Kevin back, enough of this softy (laughs) stuff. Like I'm interested. Well, yeah, I think it took like like any corporate or organizational change, people stand by and watch for a while to see if this is really gonna stick. But uh, in my case, I had no choice. Like back then, uh, if you'd been kind enough to invite me to have a talk with you, I would have had to say no. 
you know, my voice sounds unique now, but I can totally do it. It doesn't bother me. People understand me. Back then, I couldn't have even done it. So I had no choice but to go at this differently. But it was a really big change at first for our management team because had to start thinking very differently about power. And the, the simple idea that we adopted was that power was something to be given to others, not taken from others. We talk a lot now about dispersed power, shared leadership, and respect for all voices. And those are very different concepts from the traditional approach to leadership, as you well know. And that really, as you also know, because you've read the book, became the basis for the book, The Seventh Power. This idea of flipping the script on the traditional command, control, power to the center approach to leadership. Right, right. So it, it took people a while to get to get used to it, but it sounded like you, you, you were self-aware here and you were starting to have an open conversation about this shift in power as you observed it. Is that right? Yes, yeah, for sure. And because two things have to happen for that leadership model to change. One, the leaders have to change. And two, the quote-unquote followers have to change. Yeah, because our approach now, uh, which we've fallen in love with and would, would not even consider walking away from, is that everybody leads. That power is meant to be shared and dispersed. So we have 620 people that work in our company, and the concept is the company's going to be led by all 620 of them. And when everybody's leading, leadership gets lighter for everyone. You picture everybody picking up a boat or a heavy object when everybody does it. It's not that heavy. And more importantly than the business component of it, that approach is really honoring the individual human spirit. So I've come to think about uh, using the plates of work for a higher calling, which is to really help everybody come into their own true voice, which for me is a, a, a phrase that really represents the idea that every individual is unique by design. No two souls or spirits are ever going to be the same. And instead of trying to be a company that forces everybody to conform, we just want everybody to be themselves. And when it, it sounds so simple, but when you start accepting everybody at work as they are, management gets so much easier. Right, right. And it's a beautiful thing you've said there. I mean, honoring 
each individual soul and, and spirit as, as unique. And that's not the way in which CEOs tend, tend to describe their employees, <laughs> right? Right. So, yeah. So that's, you know, I, I, I touch that you're using that, that, that style of language. And this is kind of a leading question, but like, when did, when did you start to, did, did this coincide, you know, this, this shift in leadership st- style, had you started to view people differently? Like, when did that emerge in this process? Yeah, started uh, with my voice condition. Then two years later, I had a second transformational event. I began traveling from my home in Maine on the East Coast all the way out to uh, the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota in the northern plains of the United States. It's one of the biggest, most remote and historic Indian reservations in America. And it's a place I've now been over two dozen times. But here is the connection. There, I met an entire community that didn't feel fully heard that felt marginalized, that felt as if a piece of their voice had been taken or stolen. And in the oddest of ways, I could kind of relate through my own voice condition. So what that got me thinking about essentially is this. There are lots of ways for humans to lose a piece of their authentic voice in this world. That got me thinking, actually, Richard, about the very purpose or meaning of life on Earth, that unanswerable question that we all ponder. And I said to myself, well, maybe it's to self-actualize. Maybe the one commonality all humans have is we're just trying to come to know, love, and honor our authentic self as we are. But then I got thinking about leadership, and I concluded, and I said, well, well, what role has leadership played in helping people self-actualize? And I concluded, not a good one. So all that got me thinking about leadership and the impact across time that leaders have had on helping people self actual eyes and I concluded unfortunately that leaders have done more in total to limit, restrict, direct, coach, and manage the voices of others than to free them. And that's when it really struck me what I wanted to do with my voice condition because I had company that I was running. So I had the opportunity to not just think about leadership, but to actually put it in play. And I committed to a very different approach. And I said, our company is going to be about helping people find their authentic voice and make it safe for them to be who they are and say what they 
think. And I've since come up with a, a really simple but powerful, I think, rhetorical thought that capsulizes all of this. And, and that thought is this. What if everybody on Earth felt trusted, respected, valued, heard, and safe? What mm. might change? I yeah. think everything might change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how many people on Earth, especially especially in their businesses, you know, in their in their work context, could say yes to all of those questions? <laughs> I mean. I guess we know from the stats, right, how, in terms of how disengaged people are in the workplace. What is it, like 60-something percent of people disengaged in the workplace? I'm, I'm guessing all of right. those would say no to at least one of those you know, yeah, parts of your me, question. Let me use that data point. I think in America, uh, disengagement is close to 70%. Yeah, high 60s. At, at our company, engagement runs about 90%. We do a third-party survey every year, and we run right about 90%. And I have a thought on that, too. People look at that disengagement and say, what an economic lost opportunity, which is true. But I look at it and say, what a human lost opportunity. People who work spend a lot of time and energy working. And for that to be nothing more than an economic exercise in the 21st century, you know, this is not the industrial revolution. In the 21st century, that's just not necessary. and, And it's not just to improve corporate performance. It will improve corporate performance, but that's the outcome of a higher calling. That higher calling is honoring humans at work. Yeah. 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 Beautifully said. And, uh, and, and we could get, you know, I'd love to get a little bit more into the, the, the corporate performance impact here, because I think for some some part, you know, some people listening that 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 may be you know what gets them into this conversation. But I'm also just to wind back a little bit. How do you find yourself visiting, you know, Pine Ridge? Like, I'm just interested yeah. in the backstory. Yeah, I had always had a love affair with the American West, the history, the landscape, the bigness of it. Uh, In about 2012, the economy had stabilized, and I could see our company was going to be okay. And I had this growing feeling uh, coming from the rugged individualism of Maine that I tried to fight, couldn't. And that feeling was I needed to serve myself a little bit more. I needed to take some time to try to regain my voice, both literally and spiritually. Anyway, that summer, I picked up a copy of National Geographic, and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation was the cover story. And I read it, and I'd never been like swept away before like I was reading this. And I finished the article, I turned to my wife, and I said, I'm going to go there. I want to 
see what life is like for the people who live there. And that turned into one trip, which became two. And I've now taken two Lakota names, have lots of friends there, and have been there over two dozen times. It was really, though, a chance to serve myself. And that's another big point in my book is that in order for any of us to lead, the first thing we've got to do is make ourselves strong. And this idea of constantly sacrificing for others has short legs because we end up running out of gas. I've thought a lot about how change happens, and I've, uh, from, from my own view, put it in three circles. Change happens within us, then beside us, then beyond us. And this was a big management transformation for me and our company as well. The point there is if you want to create change, you don't first look at other people. You first look at yourself. And that that um, classic timeless thought from, from Gandhi, um, become the change that you wish to see. However it is you'd like to see your company, family, community, school, or planet change, just become that change. And, and I found that very liberating, very empowering. But that also flips the script a bit, right, Richard? Because in that approach, you've got to first serve yourself. And so it's, it's really about making yourself light up and when you light up, you then become something of value to others. And so Pine Ridge became, for me, this place where I lit up, that gave me power, that gave me energy, but had nothing to do with my expected roles or, or where people expected I would be spending my time or using my time. Right, right. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And, and just talk me through then walking into this reservation and then how did this experience have you light up? Like, yeah, how did that work? Yeah, it took a while. You know, that, that, that place um, rightfully full of distrust because it's a community that has been taken advantage of in big and small ways for 150 years. Chief uh, Red Cloud uh, from their tribe once said, uh, essentially of, of white America, and at the time the American government, he once said, they made us many promises, more than I can remember. But they never kept but one. They promised to take our land, and they took it. And this is a community again. I remember I uh, once I got to know the community and its history. I got thinking about the word genocide, and I and I googled it, 
and this is a, a, a kind of a low um, admission on my part. I, I only, for some reason, ever thought that genocide was something that had happened somewhere else. And when I looked up the UN, United Nations definition of genocide, every criteria had happened to these people right here in, in our own country, uh, which, like yours, holds itself up as a, you know, a beacon of freedom for all. Uh, and yet we've, we've got this really uh, dark part of our history that doesn't fit those values. These people have their voice taken from them. And, and so to put it all together, for me, I just really have developed this, this big affinity for communities that haven't had a full voice, whether it's workers within a company or a tribe like on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Right. And so um, was was it something like it it clarified for you what your mission was going to be? Is is that that what the experience gave you? Yes. Right. Yeah. no need to expand. That's exactly what it gave me. Right, right. Yeah. Clarity. And, and um, so I say no need to expand, and now I'm expanding. <laughs> so what I was going to say is what a gift clarity is, deep clarity. And what I got from my voice condition and my time at Pine Ridge is deep clarity about what mattered to me, about the change I wanted to become and see in the world. And that's liberating too. When you have that level of clarity, you are kind of set free to just go, which is what I've been doing, going at that for the last 10 years. Right, I get it. And so when when did you first start expressing this? I'm just sort of imagining a scenario where you start saying this to your staff and like, what's put to Kevin? Yeah, get it close to 10 years ago. And, and I do think at first people were like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> I tell people, I, um, well, someone said to me once, said, Kevin, you had the best midlife crisis I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) But it really is. um, I have a friend who's spiritualist who made an interesting comment to me one day that served as the basis for that concept of a midlife awakening. She said that what that what happens in her view is at about the halfway point in life. Think of it as halftime on the soccer pitch. That the soul calls a timeout and really takes an inventory of how things are going and assesses whether or not that spirit is on its proper trajectory, and if it's not, uh, uh, tries to give it a nudge 
to move it in the right direction. Now, I needed a big nudge, so I got this giant shot across my bow in the form of a, of a voice condition that forced me to change in a, in a way that was a blessing. And really, when you oversimplified, when you talk less, you listen more. And the biggest voice I started hearing was more clearly was my own. Mm. Yeah. And, and it, you, you heard your voice more clearly and, and you talked about light. So is it, are you also experiencing light? I mean, is it, how did, is that part of this, your own light or? Well, it was all very stress-relieving, I would say that. And I have said before that it all made me feel physically lighter. Like when you know you're on your path, you found your voice, you know it. Like, like in the deepest, deepest part of your essence. And when you know that, I think there's a great sense of calm and trust that comes with it. I was before, you know, this classic, nothing wrong with it, but this classic traditional executive always trying to plan and control and and letting go of that has just been really liberating and to something you mentioned our performance as a company took off i'll say it this way just uh not not to brag about the company but to promote the concept of shared leadership, we ended up in the 10 years that followed, uh, for lack of a better term, making more money than the company had from 1848 to 2010. <laughs> we And the company had always done well or it wouldn't have been around. But we truly went from from doing good to doing great. And a lot of you know people have questioned this. They said to me, business people, Kevin, okay, explain this to me. If you give everybody their voice and more freedom, what about um, corporate focus, discipline, efficiency, productivity, all that? What happens? Well, in our experience, which is now a decade long across a fairly good-sized company, it all gets better. And our safety director, for me, something that I best what he explained why by saying people are much more apt to support that which they help to create. And what we found is what everybody feels like they have a voice, do have a voice. A, we make better decisions. Put a price on making better decisions. <laughs> when you're hearing the voices of the people who actually do the work in a safe, 
setting, you make much better decisions. Second, what we found is people don't expect to have their exact way. They understand this is a company with lots of perspectives. What they really want is to be heard. And if they feel like they were heard in authentically in a decision-making process, their willingness to support the outcome, really authentically support it, goes way up. So the, one of the great ironies to me, Richard, is when you disperse power, discipline improves. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Be- yeah, beautifully said. And and we hear that again and again on this show. I mean, we've had a number of e- leaders who've taken this perspective with their businesses, and they're often challenged in the same way, isn't it? Just become ca- ca- chaos. How do you deal with performance management individuals? How do you fire people? What do you do when people are underperforming? And again and again, and the answer is just you. You just trust the people, and these things work themselves out. They make better decisions. You become more productive. You become more profitable. Uh, if you start from this basic principle of honoring the individual, it's it's right. uh, and, and you take even the example of an individual underperforming, or let's say uh, an individual who's not thriving at our company, the old model would be well, that individual can't keep up here. She's not a good enough person for our company. And that's just such a terrible, like, ill, sick approach. The new model is so much simpler. If, if someone's not thriving at our company, you just talk to them about it and say, hey, it feels like you're not thriving. And I, we know you're an amazing person. So what do you think's at the root of that? And often it might be that person's highest calling is going to be doing something else. But that doesn't mean that's not an amazing person. So when you change that perspective, even the process of helping people leave the company has a whole different spirit to it once you've refit your lenses in terms of how you're going to see people at work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. And it links to something you said, you know, moments ago when we were talking about how the, the traditional uh, approaches to try and coach people. And that's something I engage in. And sometimes companies, you know, pay me to coach their executives. And and what's interesting to me is you even challenged my own thought process there, because even coaching, in a sense, can be a kind of subtle, all right, a sort of more humane form of control here. And 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 what you said, no, this is about setting people free uh, you know, to share their light, to to be in their uniqueness. And it, it sounds like that's what you're doing in this example. And sometimes setting people free and allowing them to express their uniqueness might be not coaching them to better performance within the company, but go finding their calling elsewhere. Right. I, I saw a great article the other day about how a baby learns to walk. And the point was that is the uh, that is an authentic example of how humans ideally learn. 
so that baby didn't go to um, a training program, <laughs> didn't open up a manual, didn't, you know, they get a little bit of guidance, a little bit of protection, but they basically learn on their own for their own reasons by watching the world around them. And then you look at how we go about teaching in school or in business, and we're so far off that track. And so it's really about giving more freedom back to the whole approach to learning and growing and developing. All you really need, I believe, is a set of high-level core values that are really visible that that are going to define who we want to be within that you don't need a lot else we we've we've been a best place to work in maine for seven years in a row and people ask well what kind of training program did your managers go through to facilitate that? And I struggled with the answer at first, but now I've come to embrace it. It's none. <laughs> none. Other than the idea of let's push power out, let's share leadership, and let's honor everybody where they're at. Yeah, beautiful. Uh yeah, no, no manuals, no guidebooks, no, no induction programs. Yeah, just, just honor the individual. And yeah, I can imagine some people listening to this and thinking, yeah, but how does this all? How do you then solve the coordination problem if everyone's being free spirited? You know, you've got some, you know, some lumber to to cut, yeah. to ship, and to get out the door to customers and fulfill orders. And but yeah, just well, I suppose respond. Yeah, you just respond to that. How does the coordination get solved in that context? Yeah. It- it's a lot easier, is a long story, uh, to that. The old model of controlling what everybody says, that takes a ton of work. <laughs> that, that takes a ton of bureaucracy and hierarchy and reporting and record keeping, and it doesn't work very well. The new model is a lot less work and a lot more effective. So within any work group, take a a production team in one of our sawmills, they huddle every morning. We've agreed on what our core metrics are going to be. They participated. We've agreed. We've got Court metrics, they're on the board, uh, you know, by the minute they're updating. And that team is working together on how to continuously improve their segment of the operation to best achieve those metrics. So there's no lack of discipline or data or accuracy in that model. It's a really funny idea to think about it. It goes to the heart of the problem that if we trust people more, that must create poorer results. Think about what that implies about how we think about humanity. And what I'm here to say is if we trust people more, that creates 
better results, more accuracy, more buy-in, and more discipline. Yeah, more discipline, more order. So precisely against you know what the the preconception would be, which is you create chaos and a lack of coordination and a lack of focus. Right. You're saying you create more discipline by trusting more. You create more discipline, and and that I think is is you know one of the kind of counterintuitive for some messages that you know here that we're we're right. Because think about this too. I don't think it's talking about enough when a company is inaccurate, chaotic unsafe, lots of rework, lots of production breakdowns. Who suffers from that? Of course, the company performance does, but the real people who suffer are the ones in that value stream doing the work. They have to live it. One of my favorite questions about accuracy or it's opposite rework, going back to do rework, is I'll say to a group, uh, how, how many of you enjoy rework? <laughs> Nobody raises a hand. Nobody enjoys rework. So again, it's shifting perspective. You, you know, this is about improving the workplace for the people in the workplace as led by the people in the workplace. It's such a simple approach. And of course, they want a smoother, more accurate, more consistent workplace. Of course they do. And they know best how to create it because they're living in their segment of the value stream every day. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes complete sense. You, you know that they, they they feel the consequences that and and you give them the power to do something about it. They're going to make a better operation, right? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I think it's uh, oversimplified, but kind of two ways to live or manage. One would be with a high level of faith in humanity, and the other would be a high level of doubt. That high level of doubt would say, well, we need more control. We need more supervision. We need more management. And the approach you and I are talking about today is, no, we need more trust. We need more support. We need more listening. We need more encouragement. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that makes, makes, makes complete sense. Um, some, one of the um, points in your book, one of the, the sixth lesson here, which I thought we might touch on, is um, overreaching has consequences. Overreaching has consequences. Uh, I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I saw this on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, you know, in the second half of the 19th century, our country, America, had this idea of manifest destiny to, to have a country that went from sea to shining sea. And we ran 
over the people who already lived here. And our country is still dealing with the consequences of that, that overreaching has consequences not just for the people who have been overreached against, but for the people who do the overreaching. So in this book, The Seventh Power, I wanted a fresh example of that. And I was down in my basement one day, one Sunday, looking for a movie to watch. And I came across a a movie called The Bitter Harvest, which was about the Ukrainian hollow more they call it in the early 1930s hollow more means forced starvation and essentially in the early days of the soviet union um, the ukrainian countryside was quite recalcitrant and not really very into the idea of a soviet union at stalin and his crew decided to starve that population to death. It's a, a, a quite a hidden story, but in the course of two years, something like seven or eight million Ukrainian peasants in, in the breadbasket of Europe died of starvation. The Soviets went door to door took all the food sources from every home and then blockaded large regions of the country. So there was an example of overreaching. And of course, you can think about the strife today in the Ukraine. But I um, wondered, long story short, if there was anybody still alive from that hollow more, uh, found uh, the memorial in Ukraine, Kiev, and went to Kiev and went out and interviewed a couple of the last survivors of this event and used it in my book as an example of overreaching and its consequences. Right. Right. And something that strikes me as part, you know, a big part of your story coming through here is your willingness to follow your intuition. Right. Uh you know, the first with going to Pine Ridge, then going, you know, over to to Kiev. Like, is is that something that's always been a quality of yours, or is is this something that's sort of awakened along with this condition? I'm interested. It really, it really awakened as a result of my voice condition. Yeah. Prior to that, I was more about what am I supposed to do. What do people expect me to do? And now I'm more about what's my heart telling me to do. Now, what's interesting about that, though, uh, in my view, but to really test that you have to talk to people at our company, is following my heart made me a much more effective um leader, manager, and executive. You know, for me, it wasn't about going to business school and getting it. Not that those things aren't great. I'm not saying that at all, because for some people, that would be following their heart. But for me, it was about acquiring some very different kinds of wisdom 
and then incorporating that into our um, work world. But I really would say my journey in the last 10 years has been, uh, I measured it once, it's about two feet from my head to my heart. (laughs) The toughest two feet of ground in life, I think, uh, is to go from living dominated by the head to dominate it by the heart. We need both. But I think um, life is really about learning to follow the heart, which to me translates back to this notion of uh, helping everybody commit to their true voice. When I say that, that's what I really mean. If you, if it was safe to to delve into your heart and be exactly what resonated there, that uh, is authenticity. And what the world needs is authenticity. There'll never be another you. There'll never be another you. And only you can bring forth the fullest authentic you. But leaders can have a huge impact on supporting that or thwarting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It goes back to what you were saying with the Gandhi quote, that be the change. But it also, as you say that, for me, it relates to trust, right? You, if, if you're following your heart and you're following it, you, you've developed a deep trust in yourself. Um, and how can you have trust in others at a deep level if you don't first have deep trust in yourself. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember the moment when that first happened? Because it's it's not necessarily obvious that you go from, oh, I can see this is a better style of leadership. I ask questions, you know, they, they run with their own initiative to, uh, you know, I need to follow my heart more. <laughs> like, was there like, yeah. a, do you remember a yeah. breakthrough at some point? No, no, that's a great question. It took years. I remember I was changing planes in Chicago on my first trip by Ridge on a Sunday morning, and I was so uh, unnerved, kind of scared, that I almost turned around in Chicago and came back home to really break out of the conformity is scary and it takes time. It, it took me years to really gain the clarity with which I'm, t- I'm trying to talk with you today. And I think that's such an important point. This kind of journey is not something that's actualized over a weekend or a single retreat, you know, and and also that journey never ends. You know, there's no finish line. There's no goal. The whistle doesn't blow. Whenever you reach a certain point, uh, the the amount of growth still available uh, is infinite. Yeah. So you don't ever finish, but you get to a point, I think, where you 
trust uh, the universe and your place in it. And when you start to trust the universe and your place in it, you can look at everything that's happening to you and see it with different eyes. And so the other thing that's happened is I, I can't remember the last time I was stressed at work. It, I mean, I'm telling you, it's been over half a decade, if not closer to full. I can't remember the last time I saw someone at our company raise their voice. Can't remember it. And, and to be clear, we're super competitive and driven and excited about work and growing. But somehow we've squeezed like 99% of the pressure out of it. Yeah. Well, and you look at it, I mean, and I mean, I work a lot of with a lot of senior executives and they just, oh, it's, it's heartbreaking sometimes to see it, right? I mean, especially, you know, with the pandemic, you, you know, they're, they're Zoomed out, right? They're, in, you know, the Zoom calls the whole time. They're, they're constantly stressed. They can't catch a breath. It's, yeah, I mean, it's the norm. That's the thing. It's, it's the norm for so many companies and, and executives, senior executives in, in companies. And uh, it's just, yeah, how, how can... Yeah, it does beg the question, how can people kind of get out of this cycle, especially when they're in an existing culture that, that, that pushes them in this direction? Right. The, the weight of that traditional leadership model is very heavy. And we haven't yet seen enough uh, examples and mentoring of something different, which is what's really inspired me to write the book and to want to be on the show with with um, you. I never planned it this way, but when but it's obvious in hindsight when you share leadership, leadership gets so much easier. Like I still I'm really into work. I you know, spent a lot of time at work, add a lot of value, but I'll go in now and like my phone doesn't ring. I don't get a lot of emails. Sometimes I got to look around to find things to do because <laughs> everything's been dispersed. And at this overload that a lot of executives feel, it's self-imposed. It's like, let everybody fully own their job yeah let everybody fully own their job and and that comes back to this inner work you know your lesson you know lesson number three right that change is created first from within you've got to do that if you're not in a place where you not yet can you fully trust everybody in your team to make all of their own decisions to do whatever they feel needs to be done in their area. If you're not a place where you can do that and you can completely let that go and fully trust, you've got to do the work inside you, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so earlier in my career, I was totally focused on how other people needed to change in order for our company to change. And that didn't work that well. It worked okay. Um, 
Now I'm pretty much fully focused on how I need to change. I like to say it this way. I have a full-time job, pretty close, getting myself right. Like I have, that's not simple or easy, but uh, it's quite liberating to, to become the change, to just be what you want to see. That's actionable. You know, the only person you really, really can influence is yourself. Yeah, yeah. And of course, as you've said, especially true of leaders, right? I mean, this is true of everyone, right? If you want to evolve and develop as an individual, you've got to do the work. But it's, it, it, you know, it has a far greater payoff when you're a leader. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, now your last your last lesson was broaden the mission, and you've touched into that already a bit, a little bit in this in this conversation. You know, what does broaden the mission look like to you now? Yeah, I think um, in the twenty first century, pretty much every corporation should have the same mission at its highest level, and that is to advance humanity, that's the mission. Now, in order to do that, we've got to be efficient, productive, profitable. All those metrics are still a really big deal because we can't sustain ourselves without them. But here's the subtle difference. Profits, not the top goal. Profits like the fuel that powers the top goal. The top goal is advancing humanity. I've thought a lot about how humanity is advanced, and I've concluded it's one human at a time. Advancing humanity seems overwhelming until you break it down into how it actually happens. It's advanced one human at a time. So you have to change the world right beside you. Now, if we want to advance humanity through adults, we need to go where adults hang out. And where do billions of adults on this planet hang out? They hang out at work. So the place of work Surprisingly, it's, I think, in the best position to advance humanity because I also am a big believer in the um, potential of free markets, entrepreneurship, capitalism, but done with a higher mission. And, and that mission, again, to me, is the mission of advancing humanity, one human at a time, starting with the people in your own company. I talk about this as becoming employee-centric. Our, I've stood up in front of our, a room full of our biggest customers and said, you know that old saying, the customer comes first. I don't actually believe that's true. The first time I said it to customers, I was sweating, Richard. I was so nervous. But I went on to explain myself. I said, here's what I do believe. 
I believe the people who are going to take care of the customer come first. And if a company were to create a culture where the people that work there thrived, I pretty much guarantee you that customers will have an amazing experience. So this is a good example of how change is created. If you want to help customers, you don't start with customers. You start with the people in your company who are going to make the product for the customer or interact with the customer. Yeah, I mean, it's the same principle, just applied at a different scale, right? If I want to change the people beside me, you know, to yours, your time, I've got to work on myself. If an organization Correct. is going to improve the lives of the people beside it, i.e. its customers, it needs to do the work in, on its on itself as an organization, right? And yeah, so that, that makes total sense. It, uh, there's a brilliant example of uh, a company in Holland called VZ. It's a mortgage advisory firm run on very similar principles and, and the leader there has been on the show a few times, but they just won the zero distance award, which is um, a measure of how responsive a company is to its customers. And they have exactly the same principles. They, their customers don't come first, their people come first, and yet they win the zero distance award, right? So uh, yeah, yeah, it. it, it's, um, it's yeah, absolutely uh, true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, uh, I really, you know, I really appreciate what you're saying about advancing humanity. And what came to mind as you were speaking has, you know, I guess the common trope, or maybe for some, is that advancing humanity is giving us all this great technology, sending us to the moon. And what what the picture that formed in my head as you were saying that, yeah, sure, we can send some people in the moon, but they're all <laughs> fucked up and neurotic and controlling <laughs> each other. And, you know, like, what have we achieved? <laughs> We've just put some fucked up humans on a different planet. Like, how has that helped? Right. But if we could do this work, as you say, one by one by one to first and then go to the moon, you know, uh, but much better outcome. Oh, sorry, moon I, I or to Mars you, or wherever. Sorry. Yeah. yeah that, that story um, it just told hit such an important point. I think we've gotten lost a bit in thinking that technology is our salvation. Technology is a tool, but the real game is what it always has been and will be, which is the liberation of the human spirit. And back to that question we pondered earlier, what if everybody on Earth felt trusted, respected, valued, and heard. And then, to your point, then let's go to Mars, right? Yeah. Or then <laughs> let's whatever. But until we get the human spirit right, there is no amount of technology that can undo that. And in fact, there are, there are um, components of technology that can coupled with a broken spirit become downright dangerous yeah. or, or regressive to the future of humanity. Our future is not uh, first through technology. It is first through the liberation of the human spirit. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then we could do wonders with this technology that we have at our disposal. Um, but but first, focus on liberating the human spirit. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, wow, this has you know been a wonderful conversation. Is is there anything you feel like we haven't touched on? You know, either from 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 the book or your your wider wider journey that you'd like to leave people with. Well, yeah, one story uh, to wrap things up. I was in the uh, Arizona desert a few years back, contemplating leadership when. Uh, as you do. Uh, I had, uh, yes, as I did, if you've noticed, <laughs> as I do, when these uh, five words came to me and stopped me in my tracks. And those words, Richard, were this In nature, power is dis- dispersed. I stopped, surveyed scene and began out loud asking a series of rhetorical questions to the desert itself. (laughs) I said uh, to the cactuses around me, which one of you cactuses is in charge of all the others? Who's the boss here? Where's the headquarters? Where are all the managers? Where's the CEO? When you look at nature, it disperses power. The leadership power of nature is everywhere in creatures big and small. And humans are a part of nature, not detached from it. And as such, we ultimately aspire to organize it that same way. That there is a basis for our longing for this type of path. It really is reuniting with the essence of how nature flows and works. And I would say uh, the universe has done pretty well growing and expanding, and that model has worked okay for it. And it's a lot easier to follow nature's uh, energy than to fight it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I love that. Um, and what a way to illustrate it, the, the cactuses. Actually, one of them picking a hat on saying I'm the boss. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a wonderful way to um, to illustrate it. And it reminds me of an article I once wrote um, about when we organize. I was just reflecting on me and my friends organizing a ski trip, right? Um, now, you know, this was, I'm not, it's not so easy now, right now with the situation, but, um, you know, how, how do you organize a script? Well, somebody says, oh, okay, I'll put the hotel and somebody's like, all right, I'll, I'll organize the flights. And then maybe somebody else does the transfer, but nobody says like, I'm the boss of the ski trip and you're going to be the, like the, the, the financial director of this project. And, you know, you're going to do the opera, you know, it just kind of happens, right. And people volunteer. And if someone's not pulling their weight, they, you know, somebody will have a word. But it all just happens. You have a beautiful time and the ski trip happens and you come home. Like naturally, and this is to your point, you know, naturally when we when we just um, have, you know, important projects to do in our lives with other people that we trust and we, you know, we have, a, you know, affection for, it just, it just happens, you know, no stress. Um, people tend to just about right do, you know, do their fair share and, 
yeah, it, it's like it's so simple, isn't it? It's uh, we yeah. we seem to make it so complicated. No, right. It's really about surrendering to the um, energy of the universe and mm. trusting a lot more than our traditional leadership models do. But as you said, that really begins with learning to trust ourselves. A lack of perceived trust in others is really a reflection of the work we've got to do inside. It starts, uh, change starts within us. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Uh, feels like a tour de force uh, we've been on uh, for the last uh, ninety minutes. Uh, yeah, I hope I hope the audience appreciates it. I look forward to uh, hearing their their comments. But yeah, uh, so if people want to buy buy the book, it's uh, the Seventh Power. Uh, we'll put a we'll we'll put a link to the book in the description. Anywhere else you would send people, Kevin? Well, also got a. Uh website titled the business of shared leadership.com and uh, you can find lots of resources there and you can also uh, reach me there okay fabulous but i've loved uh being on your show richard thanks so much for having it was fabulous Thank you. Well, it's been fabulous having you. And, uh, you know, what a way this the last bit of work I'm going to do before Christmas. So uh, <laughs> it's been a great way to end my working year. So I uh, appreciate that. Good. All right. Well, thanks again. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. You've got a day ahead of you. It's getting towards the end of, of my day here. But yeah, uh, enjoy it. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.